Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnow. It's the Meaning What Movie Club. This month, Sean, Chris, and I discuss Wong Kar Wai's 1994 romantic drama, Chungking Express. Quentin Tarantino loves this movie, but our feelings about it are almost as complicated as they are about Quentin Tarantino. Hey, Chris and Sean. Hello. Hey, y'all. Welcome to our, what are we calling this? Is this the Meaning What Movie Club? Yeah. Yeah. I like Movie Club. Get a little bit of alliteration there. Meaning What Movie Club. MWMC. Mwamuk. Good. Good work. I'm, I'm, I'm a branding expert. <laughs> oh, it feels so safe in your hands. All right. Um, speaking of, since you picked the film this month, Sean, would you like to introduce it to us? Absolutely. And I'll also explain why I submitted everyone to this. Um, so I picked Chungking Express by the very famous Hong Kong filmmaker Wong Kar Wai. I picked it because... I've heard over and over again from film Twitter how important of a <laughs> filmmaker he is and how he's basically the like seminal to Hong Kong filmmaking, which I think we should observe and watch because I don't know how much longer Hong Kong will allow to be Hong Kong politics. So, brief synopsis if you can even... It's a tough movie to make a synopsis because we'll discuss it, but you know the point of the film is not necessarily its plot. But it's two short stories. First story is about a cop who got dumped. Um, and he gets real sad. He And then he falls in love with a drug trafficking mysterious woman. Second plot is a different cop who was also dumped. And it falls in love with a shopkeep girl. And the kind of the central universe of this um, movie is this little food stall. Um, and that's kind of where the name of the movie comes from. Chungking is kind of the area in Hong Kong they're in and expresses a nod to whatever the food stall is. Now we begin discussing. <laughs> it gut impressions after seeing it. It is a beautifully shot film in the mid-90s sort of style where mm-hmm. it is at, at the tail end of still shooting on film, still editing on film, right? Mm-hmm. And it is very much art house, right? It, it, it is full of like overcranked slow motion moments that are sort of stop action, high grain. It, a lot of it is shot at night and really beautiful like film stock. Like it is gorgeous to look at and it's really well edited. But it is also very much in that mid 90s sort of movie storytelling tradition of like really heavy experimentation on plot and 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 interconnectedness of characters and wondering if what you're watching is related to anything else and what's actually important and who actually matters right it it presents you with a lot of extra information and as a viewer you're left wondering like is anything that i'm looking at right now does any of it matter or is it like just extra info so it's a hard film to sort of pin down my at least for me like my personal feelings about there there's there's a lot going on here. Yeah. I am very much in the same boat. Visually, it was very striking. And I saw so much of it from kind of a, a scholarly perspective where I noticed Carwise use of like reflections and colors and 
there was this recurring uh, theme in the film where uh, he would kind of change the frames. Uh, I don't know if it's frames per second, but he would change the way in which the film was shown to the viewer, which was jarring, but also, like Mason said, is like, is this important? Does this mean this moment's important? And I kind of feel like he was, in a way, trying to really force the viewer to kind of run through these questions and kind of get out of that narrative dream. But because of that, as just a film viewer, I was like, what the fuck is this? That's something that I kind of struggle with, is that like kind of duality of like, I'm simultaneously enjoying this, or like I can see what he's trying to accomplish, and I can see how he's trying to distort these norms and trying to do something new and trying to like you know subvert expectations but at the same time as somebody who's spending you know an hour and a half watching a film being taken out of that narrative dream so often and being disconnected from the characters in such a drastic way left me unfulfilled it's a tough movie i think because in in one way it is a movie about nothing right it feels a lot like a faulkner book right <laughs> where like there's this limited cast of people that actually matters and a whole bunch of stuff happens and it doesn't end up anywhere but there's still a point to it and i i, I kept finding myself wondering do i not care about these people just because they're just normal people and like this is stuff that shouldn't like it had this voyeuristic aspect to it right. and i mean that not in like the interesting sort of way that film allows us to be voyeurs but like in the way that it felt like i was just watching regular people go through their lives who happened to be doing some weird things right and and like the weirdness was not and i'm sure we'll talk about this in a little bit but like the weirdness was not weird enough to make me go yeah i want to i want to see where this comes out it was it was like it was a little cringy but it was also just like I don't have any investment. I don't know that I care. <laughs> yeah, it just reminds me of when like short stories and fiction try so hard to be naturalistic to the point you're like, yeah, we're just observing people, but maybe maybe we're too simple for it. And but I want something inherently exciting right. to move me. What do you want to make me feel? I feel like the biggest problem of the movie was like you do want a little bit of instructions, like what do you want me to feel here? And like a great movie will make you believe it, and a bad movie will just you like you'll see all through all the holes. But this movie like almost said "fuck you," figure it out. I wonder too, like how much of this movie is a victim of the time that it was like was it ahead of its time, right? And have we just seen this format done better by everyone who's ripped it off, right? Like <laughs> was it just so experimental in that, or is that giving it too much credit, right? Because we we know that film people love this movie, right? It's part of the Criterion collection, which is where we all watched it. Quentin Tarantino loves it. it it's sort of this indie darling and the most literal meaning of that. And I and I feel like it it really exemplifies the trappings of that in in that it is a film meant for people who appreciate film, right? Like right. like every interesting thing about it. It's sort of like we talked about abstract art in the Rothko episode being designed to be appreciated by people who make that same art, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder how much of this film benefits if you know what it's doing or what it's trying to do. Yeah. And like some context, I don't know if you like looked at 
Wong Kar Wai's Wikipedia page, but basically he made this while he was busy making a second film, which was apparently a wuxia film, so like, you know, those big kung fu epics, but, you know, he was doing it in his non-direct style, so he's basically making an art house kung fu fantasy film that wasn't really focused on combat, allegedly, so, you know, that's bizarre, but he was feeling very trapped in that art-making process, so he just whipped this up and made this in six weeks just to like feel like he could storytell again and he is very proud of this film so it almost feels like a a self-exercise in just getting to to make films and things for the boys it makes me think of a review that i read recently for the new christopher nolan movie tenet (laughs) which i haven't seen yet but somebody was describing it as, as like it was peak Christopher Nolan in that like it is indecipherable and it's designed to be and you're supposed to like sit with it and think about it but it is so wrapped up in that identity that it forgets that it needs to let you in a little bit you know Mm. I really love some of Nolan's films I feel like how much I love one of his movies is really based on how much he lets me in on the end joke right like because it's so easy to just get wrapped up in in the sort of spectacle that's excellent point yeah, maybe it's easiest to like break down story one than story two, and then complain about the movie as a whole. Complain is a strong word. We should avoid qualitatives in our critiques, Sean. We've talked about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I discuss our feelings and discuss our opinions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. So the first story with our very very sad cop and drug dealer lady. Like, tonally, my biggest problem with the drug dealer lady and her whole storyline was, like, all of a sudden it became, like, an MTV music video. I'm shooting everyone down! And you're like, okay, tonally, it just, like, felt like it didn't make any sense. And she was so cold and single-minded bitch on a mission. It felt like almost a parody of, like, a hard-as-nails person. And then the very gesture at the end of the story where she supposedly calls him and says happy birthday or leaves a message for that is supposed to be that moment of softening and like acknowledgement of love for one another. Which is certainly how he sees it, right? Right, which is how he frames it. He like, our narrator tells us that he falls in love with the woman 56 hours later or something. Well, what Mason mentioned about the auteur, like letting the viewer in i feel like the lack of being let in is kind of the most apparent at this point in the film and i feel as if rather than separating the film into two parts if it continued with the first part Mm -hmm. i feel like i would have found so much more direction not necessarily artistic direction but the way it goes the way the story moves forward right i would have found it much more satisfying if it it had continued with the first story it felt like just one long setup and then it didn't pay off yeah and i i have i have to think that was very very intentional Mm -hmm. for me as a viewer like i have to it has to be intentional for me to just like make sense of the film (laughs) like like if, if, if it was accidental then it's just like you know, like that's, that's kind of a brilliant stroke, but <laughs> like the very beginning is kind of where we as viewers kind of get introduced to 
the style and the pacing and the kind of juxtaposition of this really lonely man with all these like dark drab colors and even though you can tell that uh cinematically they're using like a handheld camera and you can kind of tell during like these calm more realistic aspects of the first Mm -hmm. story that it's very calm and serene and kind of focuses on the emotional state that this that this cop's going through and then it's juxtaposed against all of these intense like really shaky really uh kind of I don't want to say poorly shot, but, you know, this is not as, like, professionally shot as... Gritty. Pop, yeah, it's much more gritty in trying to depict this kind of seedy underworld. And you kind of... The viewer kind of has to piece all these things together. You know, you see this woman who is obviously very powerful, and she stands in such, such stark contrast to this wallowing cop. And then the viewer kind of gets a little bit by bit of what's actually going on. I didn't even realize until after, you know, several minutes after they introduced this uh, kind of femme fatale kind of character that what she actually did, but I knew that she was dangerous before that. And so he does this really great job of like building these characters up in these really interesting ways of, you know, showing how obsessive the cop is, not by necessarily just him solely like pining over his lost love interest but how he kind of takes that and puts it into other parts of his life like the pineapple cans pineapple cans and his obsession with the dates and the numbers and how pushy he is and how he he can't take no for an answer but he also can take no for an answer and it's just because he can't get anything together (laughs) yeah and so Having these two things in such stark contrast to one another, I felt was just such a beautiful way to go. And then it all just ends. Right. Without any real resolution, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, here's an interesting dichotomy to set up. And moving along, anyways. Right. I I totally was waiting for that story to come back. Like, the whole movie. And, and about halfway through the second story, I realized that I was not going to get the rest of the first one. You know? And I was like, oh... <laughs> Well, fuck me. Right? The drug dealer is just going to come in and gun down all the rest of the main characters. <laughs> just wipes the out the, the entire movie. cast. Yes. Okay. There's something. Like, no wonder Tarantino liked this film. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Samuel L. Jackson's in it? Yes. I don't know how much of this was like my like art school brain overworking it, but I felt like one of the things that kind of hooked me in the, the first story was it felt very much like thinking about the politics of Hong Kong and Taiwan and China, especially in this area a few years before China reabsorbed Hong Kong. I was viewing this first story as sort of a sort of a light commentary on that as mm-hmm. well, right? We have the police officer who's our main character who is a Taiwanese-born Hong Kong police officer. And then his love interest is this woman who is, she's from China, but she is presenting as this Western stereotype trope of a femme fatale. She has the blonde wig. Yeah, horrible wig. Right. She's wearing the 1990s, like round or, or oval red sunglasses. She's in, you know, a trench coat and, and it, and it's very much played up. Right. And she is interfacing with these Indian folks who are like drug running for her and there's this weird like feeling of 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 like 
trying she is like the both the colonizer and the colonized right but she's like one step above these immigrants and and then there's one white guy who's in there randomly who owns the restaurant or or, or the bar that's like the contact of some sort right and and they make a big statement of him like aggressively having relations with a, a woman there who puts on a blonde wig very much like the one that, that this femme fatale is wearing. And so like we had all these little pieces, all this like little political commentary. And I, I it kind of hooked me because I was like, this is an interesting way to present a love story. Like, where's he going with this? And then he doesn't go anywhere with it. As, as I line it all out, like I think if we look at it that way, it's kind of intriguing again, because the, Taiwanese police officer who is just trying to build some, you know, who's obsessive and just trying to build some sort of structure in his sad little life hooks onto this woman that represents what is oppressing him. And she gives him the smallest bit of hope. And that is everything that he needs. And then that's it. But I don't at the same, but then like I sit back and, and I think, well, am I thinking about it this way just because I have an art school background and that, is like like I'm I'm desperately trying to find some symbolic meaning. I I don't know because at no point do I ever feel like the director says, "Hey, this is maybe what I'm trying to tell you." I think I agree with you. And something you mentioned like just before we started this episode is like how the cop himself is an unreliable narrator, right? You're just like you're not really sure what to believe, like to believe what he said because he's not providing all these details and he's just portraying himself as so pathetic. And like one tidbit that I found interesting is all their inner monologues, basically breaking the fourth wall, turn to camera, talk to you, are all in Mandarin. But um, in Hong Kong, I think the most common like Chinese language you'd speak is Cantonese. And the cop's Mandarin is bad, like on purpose. Like the accent is like, Mandarin's not your first language. Why are you doing this? This feels really forced. Hmm. I don't know where I'm trying to go with this, but yeah, there's like an interesting interplay. I think I really like the way you kind of line out this like political thing. Like Hong Kong is this like weird crossroads of Southeast Asia with all the cultures and languages that kind of crash and intertwine and colonialism. And what you get is kind of a muddled, confused mess, both politically and linguistically. Right. And I think that also kind of is shown when our protagonist in the first half meets the femme fatale in the bar and while trying to get her attention speaks every language she knows <laughs> yes you know in some of them very poorly including english and so it kind of helps to reinforce that idea of this being kind of like a crossroads and as we were talking about earlier this idea that as with the rothko episode like kind of making something for the people that are involved in the craft uh you know this is also might also be something that is created for a non western audience very much so yes presumably and so we as westernized individuals who wouldn't have understood this film in 94 or 96 are now trying to view this through a completely different lens than what was originally intended and so while while also caters to those who have some kind of uh educational background to make more sense of this it also is likely intended to appeal more to those who live in Hong Kong or China or Pakistan or, you know, wherever else where this has much more relevance. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, it's a fun thought experiment. 
at this first part of the film, is if you imagine that our police officer is not actually a police officer at all, and that he, it is just another aspect of his unreliable sort of yeah yeah and, and his dreams of grandeur right like he never does any policing right he just tack- <laughs> right, he tackles exactly. a guy <laughs> and says how proud he is about it and he has a pager but he doesn't really seem to do much else than that it's 1994 everybody had a pager right, right? like and and who knows about tackling the guy either like he's he's clearly not the most mentally stable person right like like he's going through something and I think that also shaped like my experience of him too was for the whole time. Like I, I was not sold on the fact that he was actually a cop. Right. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't even entirely sold on the fact that he had dated this woman right. either. Interesting. You yeah. know, like, like, right. This woman may, who we don't ever see who dumps him on April fool's day, which I thought was a fun little thing. Right. right? And then he buy he buys a, can of pineapple. of of canned pineapples every day. Demarcate the time, yeah. Right with a with a exp, the expiration date of May first, which is his birthday. Right, yeah. Um, all of these cute little things lining up, right? That just feel too twee. Yeah, yeah, and you know, this is a film by a very well respected filmmaker who would know what he was right. doing. Right, I I would assume like that is too many Chekhov's guns on the mantle, right? right? And it it just gets too ridiculous. But I almost like it more, and maybe it is because I really love The Sound and Fury by Faulkner, and I've been thinking about it a lot lately for some reason. And so I I am really like in love with the idea of just having a totally unreliable narrator, where like no matter how the story is told, we just don't ever know, and it's kind of left up to us. But again, it's like, it is this trap of like having to obsess over this story. Like you said, Chris, to have it make any sense at all or have any payoff, right? Like, like you, you almost have to force it into some sort of box, right? To like get anything out of it. And I don't, I don't know if that's satisfying or not. It keeps setting up these motifs and then sort of using them and then kind of chucking them aside and you're like... Am I supposed to glean something from this? The cans, like the also the the drug lady also has like there's like meaningful pans to cans of things, and the whole I bumped into her. I was zero point zero one centimeters away. I fell in love with her X number hours away, and then they use that to frame the end of the first story, and then just kind of drop all these motifs into the trash. Right, we're suddenly watching a completely different film in the yeah. back half, which is maybe a good segue. Into the second half, second half of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, my one context, like I watched this with David, my partner, and he made a point that it felt like the second half felt so much longer. It just like went on. It felt, maybe it was just pacing, but it just felt like twice as long as the first half. And I don't know if it matters, but the two main actors in the second half, Tony Leung and Fei Wong, are like considerably more famous. Like Fei Wong is a huge singer. I'd say like the biggest Kento pop singer of the 20th, 21st century. And Tony Leung is like a huge actor in Asia, especially known for his collapse with this director. So didn't Bridget Lynn come out of retirement to do the first half of this movie mm-hmm. too, though? Like she is, she was a big name. So he was like pulling all these big names together too. Right. And, and she, I, I 
think I read that she specifically came back because she wanted to make a movie with this director. And, you know, like if you look at what we touched on earlier, the kind of story of how this film came together, basically with uh, the director having, you know, this gap of time where he was waiting on equipment for another film. It's just like, hey, I want to do something kind of completely different. Looking at his inner circle and kind of pulling whatever clout he has to kind of get people together to make something super quick, you're not going to, not only if you have that kind of pull, but also if you're on a certain time crunch, you're going to get people who know what they're doing and have some kind of clout themselves. Right. So right. while it may just be coincidental that these big name stars in that part of the world agreed to come onto this, but whether or not that's intentional, that's kind of left up to the viewer. Like so much of this film right. is, it's ultimately put in the viewer's hands and like, here, have fun. <laughs> is it fun? Make some sense of this for us, please. Oh yeah. So second half is like love actually but like bizarre. It's one of those deeply uncomfortable cinematic love stories, right? That only works in a movie. Like if it happened in real life, arrest her. Right. It would not work. But so in a way it also feels like commentary and, and maybe that is one way to look at this movie where like the first half is a political commentary and the second half is a commentary on filmmaking on love stories. But I don't watch very many romance films, um, so I don't feel like I'm qualified to really talk on this point so much. But I do wonder, because the sort of tropes that it traffics in, right? Like the story is of this cop who is going to this this snack bar and this woman, Faye, begins working there and she's really into like Western rock music and obsessively listens to One Mama's and the Papa's track over and over and over again about California. And... Like the one verse that they could get the All rights the to. Are brown. <laughs> so they he gets dumped by his very attractive girlfriend, who's a flight attendant, and then sort of has this weird tension with Faye, who gets the keys to his apartment, and then like starts cleaning up his apartment to cheer him up. Right, and but the, like this heavy symbolism of the keys are from the girlfriend who dumped him, leaves a letter behind, and he just like can't bear to pick up the letter. Because she dropped it off at the food stall. Right. She passes the ring to his new amour. <laughs> but all of the sort of tropes that I could pick out here like felt very much like early 2000s romantic comedy tropes, right? Of, of like the movies that we look back on now and go, oh, that's criminal behavior, right? Or like, that's very dangerous. Why did we think that was cute in 2002? But it is happening in, in 1994 romantic movie that doesn't feel like a comedy right like i wouldn't qualify this as a romantic comedy but it it is setting those things up and so i'm uh, all of this is to say like i wonder if this was a commentary on that type of storytelling and if that type of storytelling was maybe more prominent in hong kong cinema than it was here at the time or if it in some way was foretelling sort of that rise of that Love Actually style, here's a bunch of people doing kind of shitty things to each other, and then it's a happy ending. Yeah, like, when I think of Hong Kong films, I think of these, like, big, gritty kung fu epics, and I feel like that's, that reputation still falls at now, so I feel like it's so hard trying to touch all the other genres. I'm sure that they have their own, like, local Love Actuallys or whatever, but it's right. It's, like, so hard right. trying to be not what everything else is 
while trying to identify as Hong Kong. And I guess we should stipulate too that romantic movies of the 1960s and Western cinema were not too far off of this as well. Now that I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about it, right? Like your Humphrey Bogart movies were (laughs) similar vein, but... But the creepiness was the girl. What a twist. Yeah. And maybe that is something valuable to look at right here is that like there's this sort of role reversal, right? There's an expectation reversal for me in that the cop who is presented as not really our main character, but it sort of follows him in a weird way, is the passive actor, right? And and Faye, this the snack bar girl, is the aggressor. She's the one pursuing and the one breaking into his apartment and buying him goldfish and playing with his model and airplanes. Cleaning and his apartment, sort of. Shouting at people out of the windows. Like <laughs> she thinks she's you know, cute. Yeah, this and this role reversal, it kind of isn't a role reversal and kind of isn't mm-hmm. because dur- throughout the entire second half, he is very chivalrous and, you know, he's kind of very, like, public-facing honorable. He's there to help her with the things that she needs, but he also doesn't step in as like, oh, you're weak, let me help you with this. Right. He's right. more like, if you want help, like, feel free to ask me, but I'm going to let you do your thing, which is very different from a lot of the movies from the 60s or music you know like the sting song like i'll be watching you there's all these like creepy voyeuristic uh elements of relationships that are very very acceptable or at least were very acceptable at one point in time or sometimes even you know expected of especially of men and we also see a kind of similar role reversal in the first half as well where our male protagonist is very kind of neurotic and nervous and passive and is the one pining after a love interest, whereas mm-hmm. we have a very, very strong, independent, <clears throat> quote-unquote, businesswoman, you know, suspicious quotation marks, right. who is ruthless and violent. And so I, I do kind of see this mirror being held up to certain elements of society, whether it be film or what society may view as acceptable in fictional or entertainment mediums right. that may not be readily considered acceptable by the general population. Right. If we continue my sort of obnoxious recontextualizing of our first half of this movie, like if it was an Anne Hathaway film <laughs> right, from the mid 2000s, uh, she would be our cop character mm-hmm. and stumbling through, and she'd meet this totally like dangerous dude who was too cool for her. And then she would. Yeah. Oh, I'm into this. I'm yes. into this. Yeah. Okay. Shot in such a way where you can tell that, you know, where they make him look as tall as she is. You <laughs> yeah. know. He's just on a box. Right. <laughs> and and we would go through it and, and she would end up like having the makeover that's really just her straightening her hair and taking her glasses off. And then she'd be super cool for this guy and it would turn out that he had a heart of gold or he was the wrong person to be chasing. And it's kind of satisfying that we don't get that. Right. Like the guy ends up just as neurotic and with zero payoff and sort of this weirdly relatable way of like that experience where you hype something up in your mind and and convince yourself that something's happening. And then you get the one little, little glimmer confirmation bias. Yeah. And, and you go, Oh, I was right. And all she's doing is wishing him happy birthday. Which you can totally see. You're just like happy birthday kid with so much sarcasm. And you're just like, what is this? Right. Thanks for polishing my shoes with your tie. And not raping me while I was drunk and passed out. 
R- right. <laughs> That's implied. You're, you're right. Like, they're both this role reversal, and that way it ends up being kind of subversive in this way, at least from a Western standpoint, which I think says more about our storytelling than it does about anything in this film, that our expectations are subverted because um, even the the quote-unquote bad characters are not that bad mm-hmm. at the yeah. end of the day. But I also somehow managed to find both of the female characters so underdeveloped as people, um, especially for this the second story. Faye is like to me doesn't feel like a real being or person more than just like a weird plot device metaphor. Maybe till the very end, and then it becomes a little bit like an Anne Hathaway transformation story, which I would like to note happens. By her basically becoming the guy's ex Right. She, right? she like literally she is gets, like, I'm just going to go to California. And she somehow becomes a flight attendant, which I don't think it is that easy. And then she just comes back one year later based on her soggily handwritten boarding pass. And it's like, oh, you know, I just wasn't planning on being here. But oh, look, you're here. California was okay. <sighs> yeah. You own the place that my uncle used to own because he went and opened a karaoke bar. Didn't hear about it at all. No. This all works out. And now you're going to leave it even though you just purchased this business and are sinking a bunch of money into renovating it. Um, You're just going to up and leave because that's how the world works. (laughs) But before that, she is, we like don't get the inner monologue, her like speak breaking the fourth wall until very far in. And beyond that, she's just, nodding her head to California dreaming and breaking into this guy's place. And that's her character basically for a good two thirds of this story. And I'm like, well, that's not really a person. I feel like I'm missing some context of it being Faye Wong, the the very famous singer and her charisma is supposed to like Mm. carry some of this. She's just so mysterious. I mean, like it's a film of attractive people, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Especially in the second half, like like our two protagonists are very attractive and they look very nice together. And but I wonder too if it was sort of a commentary on like old world and new world. Mm. Like she is such a trope in like listening to rock music, and she has the the short little pixie cut right, and and she she dresses very casually and like very fun, and and it has all you know all of these sort of like western affectations right and and he is a cop with a side part and in a very clean uniform exactly how my dad dressed in the 90s (laughs) hello everyone and welcome to the break i hope that you are enjoying our first episode of the meaning what movie club planning on doing this about once a month is really fun to do and it gets us each of us, uh, to watch a movie that we might not watch otherwise. So, in that vein, if you have any suggestions about movies you'd like to hear us talk about, or movies that you think we should see, send them to our email. That email is meaningwhatpod at gmail.com. We have a few exciting things coming up, um, including our first ever mini-pod hosted by our producer and co-host Sean Ang, which will debut next month and come out uh, about once a month. Uh, So stay tuned for more info on that coming soon. Until then, give us a follow on social media at MeaningWhatPod. 
Uh, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. Or uh, if you prefer some light reading once a week, please subscribe to our newsletter. The link to that is in the description below. We're also working on a website for the podcast, uh, which all these things will be gathered on um, for easier access. So stay tuned for that. Please remember to like, subscribe, leave a review, all of those things. We're still trying to beat that algorithm and get some more attention, and we need your help to do so. Thanks again for listening. Enjoy the rest of the episode, and we'll talk to you again next Thursday. So, like, is that the commentary of the second part? Maybe? Right, and the only know. other song besides California Dreaming is a cover of Dreams by the Cranberries sung by her. <laughs> it's like, okay, sure. Well, something else, speaking of Faye and the way she dresses, the transition from the first to the second story was so jarring right? that I assumed that our male protagonist in the first half was a police officer. And then the transition to the second half, I didn't realize that our second male protagonist was male protagonist until like a couple of minutes in i'm like he looks different is it just because he's wearing something else <laughs> right you know we have the femme fatale who all is always wearing the trench coat and then we have our first male protagonist who is always wearing like the gray shirt and the red tie that he uses to polish his shoes and then we have our second male protagonist who up until the very end is always wearing well aside from him being in his, in his underwear at home whenever he's out in public he's Top in his uniform yeah whereas Faye almost every time we see her, she's wearing something else. And that's kind of how I could tell that time was passing. As she continues to go into his apartment, while that happens for such a long stretch of time, you can tell how long it's going on by how much she yes. changes. But it, it's kind of like a joke that goes on for just long enough that it stops being funny and then it starts being right. funny again. Because he doesn't notice. Alleged, we're told that he doesn't mm-hmm. notice until like psychological change happens which would feels like a month of her fucking with his apartment yeah 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 it allows it allowed me as a viewer maybe not for others but allowed for me as a viewer to kind of go through all these differing emotions of like okay this is creepy okay this is weird and like okay this is adorable and you know start to see a little bit more about her motivation and why she would be doing this without my hand necessarily being held and be like, this is why she's doing it. And this is kind of what I was trying to get Mm -hmm. out of it. That was kind of one of the only real glimpses I got of being let in during the second half. Whereas I felt like during the first half of the story, like I was constantly being let in with no real payoff, but I was still being let in in the process. Yeah, and and there's even an implication like right before she bales right that he knew all along when he brings back her cd mm-hmm. you know and like you have that moment where she falls asleep in his apartment and they after he discovers her in it and he makes a comment about how this his ex-girlfriend loved this song but when he returns the cd to her he is like he left this at my apartment and and there's a moment of like did he figure it out in the meantime or did he always know you know which softens the story a little bit i guess Right. Maybe it's setting that up of like he knew all along and he was letting it happen. Right. But they like the way they frame it is like he's delightfully glib and unaware of it, which also makes me question how good of a cop you are when you can't notice pretty obvious changes. She just put up a childhood picture of herself there, which he notices 
yeah, we see him find that. Like, like we have that moment where he's like looking in the mirror for some reason, and he like notices that it's there, and is you know like have that moment. She's like changed like, the sheets, changed all the sardine cans, bringing back the can theme, sort of. He has a different stuffed animal. Yeah. It's not the white wolf anymore. It is a giant Garfield and a barbecue t-shirt. Which he, and he like spends every night allegedly talking to his dirty towel rags and his stuffed toys as therapy. But it like. I sort of found that delightful. The, the, the first scene, like it is so saccharine and, and overdone. But the, the first scene right after he's broken up with, when he has that just ruined towel, right? And he's, he's talking about how sad it is and how it is all full of water and it just he just needs to let its water out and it's a call back to the first cop and his jogging to get the water out so he doesn't cry right but he's like putting all of his emotions onto this towel and he rings it out and he's like you know here let me help you and he rings it out and he hangs it up and presumably it gets like there was something so deeply endearing about that right that scene that made me you know Go okay, fine. I'll finish this movie, right? Like, <laughs> and and the film kept doing that to me, right? right? Like, despite it all, every time I thought I was like, I I paused this movie halfway through and I got up and I made lunch because I was like, this is, I need a break. But every every time I was about to leave, like it it threw a little thing out for me like that, and I was like, okay, fine. I'll I'll come back. So he does know what he's doing. <laughs> right. One one thing that sort of underlines our, our previous point about like the second half being a conversation on like old world versus new is when he at the, at the very end like he goes to this convenience store after Faye has left, he runs into his ex-girlfriend who is we see her very briefly in a bra and jeans and then we see her in her flight attendant uniform. And then we don't see her at all anymore. And so we, we see her again and she's like in the black leather jacket and she's, you know, leaning up against the refrigerator case and in a very sexy pose and making eyes at him. Yeah. She's way too cool for him. This is like the first time we've seen him out of his cop uniform and they have this awkward conversation and her new boyfriend is out in the parking lot on a motorbike honking and revving the engine. And he's, you know, like this long haired, cool biker dude. And she steals the iced tea or whatever she's buying. Then we have like that finished transition where she's like flipped out of the uniform. Right. And she ma- doesn't she make a comment about how much better she likes him in uniform? He looks you look so much better in the cop uniform. Yeah. Right. And then the next thing that we see and sort of his happy ending is this, you know, westernized rebel girl that he had been pining over and not really even realizing it most of the time coming back in uniform. She has long hair now, sort of, and she's in a well-kept uniform and she's got a, a good job, presumably, and, and right. wants to take him away. And I thought that that was a, almost an uncomfortable contrast. This woman, and I think, Part of the reason why the women in this movie are written the way that they are is that the the point is that the male protagonists are not seeing them as themselves, right? They are symbols for the men, right? They they exist as stereotypes in and of themselves. They are they are these fictions the men are building up and projecting upon. And 
that rides all the way out through the end, right? And and ends up being the sort of role reversal where he doesn't get what he wants immediately. And this woman that made him get out of his uniform disappears and he sees his old flame who has broken out of her uniform and she's living the new life. And then he gets what he wants in the end by his new woman coming back in uniform. So it, it is like this double, triple, quadruple subversion of itself that leaves left me still, like I'm still thinking about it. Like, what am I supposed to take from this? What's the moral here? And also there's no way that he would be allowed to dry his boarding pass in a hot dog cooker. Right, that he like couldn't answer, couldn't bear to open until it rained. I need to bring that up because that is just- Insane. One, it's disgusting, but also like, that napkin would be so ruined and covered in yeah. grease. And he the fact it. that it was like mostly salvaged. <laughs> okay. A little movie magic here. That is neither here nor there, but also like maybe you can relate with me on this, Chris. Like there are so many moments that they're very tiny moments, but like when they're interacting with customer service people, I think about in the first film when he goes in and he's like trying to find the, one last can of pineapples that he needs and he's bugging the guy at the circle K about it. And the guy is like, dude, I just work here. Yeah. If you want to, if you want some expired shit, here's an entire box. (laughs) Get out. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, I've been that. I've been that guy. Like that's who, that's who I relate to in this movie is the circle K employee. (laughs) who is just trying to get a paycheck, which is interesting. Now that you bring that up, I'm noticing that, you know, like, aside from, like, the core cast, like, I don't want to say all, but as far as I can recall, all of the ancillary characters, the support characters are, are like, yeah, they're service people, but also they're very, very, or at least they seem much more true to life, Mm -hmm. whereas the protagonists all seem to find themselves in these kind of caricature kind of uh, roles that are kind of a little bit they're doing these things that are kind of just like a little bit too good to be true or something like just kind of seems just a little bit off and it kind of yeah it's surreal and kind of you know brings about this idea of you know kind of like this meta narrative kind of aspect where like mason was saying with this idea uh, all these like changing of of clothes and changing in and out of uniform towards the end it's like is this supposed to mean something or is this just commentary is this supposed to make you think more deeply about the story or is this just something that kind of in like a postmodern aspect is just kind of forcing you to kind of step back a a minute and take a look at this as a film rather than as a story i'm more and more convinced of mason's theory about it the more we talk about it just because like there's so much tonally that you're like this has to be for a reason right this has to be for a reason right Right. Or is he just conveniently... <laughs> Please make this mean right. something. Or he's just conveniently putting all these motifs and yada, 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 yada together, and you're just like, okay. It, it's also sort of like a highlighting of the problem with the hero's journey, too. And, like, right. I, as you were describing that, Chris, I was thinking about the video game um, Oblivion, <laughs> the Elder Scrolls game, where every NPC in the game, like, lives by a schedule and is living, like, this very realistic life where they, like, go to work and they go to the store and they have affairs and they fight with their spouse and they talk to a dog and they... Become vampires. And you, as the hero of the story, don't have that schedule and are not beholden to doing anything. So you're just, like, running through... Do what the fuck you want. 
casting magic and fighting towns guards and everybody else around you is just living about their lives and you're the only purpose that you serve to them is to mess up their schedule <laughs> right because at some point you kill one of the npcs that they interact with and they have to adjust their schedule around it and the, the there's an interesting implication there right of like we're following these people who are doing insane stuff but they're doing it in a world where everybody else is just like trying no, not even mundane they're just trying to get their jobs right. done right like they're just trying to live in hong kong and there are two cops and two pseudo femme fatales who are just messing up everybody else's shit please pay the light bill right oops i just kept forgetting i was too busy breaking into everywhere forgot to go to the store to pay the light bill oops but it's okay because we have a hundred candles and that's and not a problem. you're my uncle or cousin and i'm just cute so moving along right oh man <laughs> it's a movie about movies i guess cool <laughs> is that good i mean like i don't really want to qualify it so much of life is just qualifying things like this is good this is bad like it's so indecipherable to like to me to say it either way and i was like curious because like i couldn't decipher a clear opinion i had about it and i looked at the review the glowing reviews that so much talked about its romanticism and its portrayal of very real feeling characters and i was like is that a 90s thing that i'm not getting (laughs) and like these are all western people and i was like even if i like tabulate for cultural differences my understanding of Asian relationships and stuff. I'm still like, mm, doesn't feel real-ish. Right, and even in like that commentary that that you sent us, Sean, Sean found a, a clip of Quentin Tarantino gushing. <laughs> Which I was like, and, oh, I don't know uh, if that's a positive or not. <laughs> I mean, the thing about Tarantino is he knows movies, right? And right. he knows esoteric movies out of, Hong Kong and yes, Japan. That's his that's he loves stealing from them. That's how he does his career. Right. Um and to his credit, like he really understands the nuts and bolts of that filmmaking in in his own way. Right. right? Cultural aside, like he he realizes what the filmmakers are doing and why it's effective. And that is in turn why he is in his own way an effective filmmaker, right? Mm-hmm. Like how you feel about him, like his movies are enjoyable and plenty of people like them. But the reason why I could not finish watching that commentary was he immediately started essentializing and objectifying the women in the film. Oh, yeah. And I was like, you're getting the point and missing it. And uh, I don't know how I feel about (laughs) this. Like, I didn't feel like I was learning anything from him because he had this weird, like, very colonial approach to it. White guy, like, oogling at East Asian women. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I didn't finish it either, even though I sent it to the group chat. <laughs> I was like, well, mm. to be fair, I didn't even watch it. <laughs> That's fine. Which is fine. I love Tarantino's work, and I can see a lot of, I can see how Fung King Express impacted some of, his, some of his work, especially like the disjointed narrative and stuff like that. I can see how that could have influenced some of his other, some of his films. But at the same time, like, I also know that he has a tendency for having like an ego. And I know that this film was brought to Western audiences through Tarantino. And 
because he had some stake in it coming to the United States, I felt as though, you know, like I wouldn't get an accurate portrayal of the relevancy of this film through him gushing over Mm -hmm. it. So I also, like, I know that uh, Roger Ebert uh, reviewed the film. Ebert had very similar feelings about the film that I did. And Mm -hmm. as somebody who is a little bit more impartial than Tarantino, I felt as though this was a little bit more my speed. Right. Where, from what I gathered, Ebert saw the elements of, of Chungking Express as where it's positive and also how the disjointed narrative can also like turn some people off. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things that I love about reviews from him, right? Is that even when I don't agree with his final opinion, he touches on the things that help me f- form my opinion, right? Like, it, it does always feel very impartial. Like, he, he will point out things, and if he does not like them, it's clear that that's just not his thing. But, like, you know. He'll frame it there, as that way. Right. There's this, he allow, the reviews allow for a space for you to go, that is a thing for me, and I enjoy that about it. And to some extent, he, you know, the reviews put that into words. Whereas Tarantino is like, this is a great movie, and here's why. But also, we all, just, you know, like Tarantino. Just you, just you, just want to hit him in the face. <laughs> and more context, like the film that came out for Wong Kar Wai after this, called Fallen Angels, is like meant to be the other part of it. In his mind, he wanted to shove it into a three-hour fragmented four-story movie. Which, oh my god, I don't know if I could have sat through that and. Fallen Angels is supposed to be the seedy underbelly of Hong Kong overtly violent crime thriller. I don't think I could have sat through that double feature as one feature. That's interesting. It, it's sort of like, it reminds me of two of my favorite films, um, Drive and Only God Forgives, another Hong Kong film. It's a different situation, obviously, but like what made Drive beautiful was how slow it was and like they really messed up advertising it, but people went into it like looking for like a, a um, fast and furious, but edgy with Ryan Gosling. Right. And it's just this very slow love story where um, Ryan Gosling kills a bunch of people with a hammer. Ha. But the director, the story I heard was that in response to the reaction drive puts out only God forgives, which is just this grotesque, overly violent CD underbelly, might be connected to Drive, but it's never really clear movie about a guy who kills a bunch of people with everything but a hammer. And I, I thought that, that that's kind of interesting because I do wonder how the context of like a film that went all the way into its vices, which a super violency underbelly film might do. I obviously haven't seen Fallen Angels, but but I wonder like how different that would have made this feel. Right, like if he had tacked on a third short story that was about a killer instead of a cop, I don't know. I, I, I think that it would have been a tonal shift, but I wonder if it would have tied everything all together, or if I just really like the rule of thirds. Like, I guess our general just like issue is just like it, it like does things and doesn't follow through, which is so pseudo satisfying in its own very meta way. But also, please, yes, we'd like some follow through please i mean at the end of the day like it or not we have plenty to talk about 
with this film, right? It was a great exercise in just getting to start our film club. <laughs> but even beyond that, like it makes us, we, we're still thinking about it and we are trying to find those answers. And a lesser film would leave us unsatisfied and just go, well, that, that's that. I don't Bye. care. I'm not invested anymore. But for some reason, like, I don't know about you guys, but like, I have been thinking about this movie since I watched it and like, I'm still trying to answer it for myself. And I don't know that those answers are there, but maybe that's kind of the point. Right? Yeah. Of like, yeah, I wouldn't watch it again. No, but, but. <laughs> I'd watch another of his films, right? Maybe, oh, yeah. maybe yeah, a more recent one. Maybe yeah. where we have just a skosh more context and understanding. And maybe all of a sudden it all clicks together and we'll go, aha, we get it. It's funny to hear you say that, Chris, because I, right before we started recording, like I had the thought of like, well, maybe I need to watch this again to like, <laughs> really get a sense of it. And I have zero desire to do so. Like right. it would be homework at that point. And I just be scribbling more notes of, okay, if I continue this metaphor here, take that one glance there with that one can. <laughs> do we frame this film club as three thumbs up? <laughs> do we do anything like that? We can't do that with this film specifically. Yeah, it wouldn't feel right with this. Ambiguous film. thumb in some direction, <laughs> or just no thumbs. Just no thumbs. All fingers. Uh, yeah. no, thumbs. no thumbs. All fingers. Take it as you will. A blank look into the middle distance. Watch this movie if you want to. Don't if you don't. This free country still for a little bit. So you know, <laughs> like do whatever you want to do. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?